Our scripture reading is Genesis 12, 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why, do you, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. This is the word of the Lord. Back in 2003, I invited a fellow named Dieter Zander to come speak at Samford. Uh, Dieter's an interesting fellow. Uh, he became the right-hand man to Bob, uh, excuse me, Bill Hybels, who was the founder of the Willow Creek Church. And it was Dieter who first started a, a Generation X worship service, kind of the first kind of trendy contemporary worship back uh, in the mid to late 90s there at the Willow Creek. And he was a wonderful speaker, so I had him come speak for what we used to call Christian Emphasis Week. But one evening while he was with us, he got a call from his wife. And it was just an odd call, and I saw his face kind of go flush, and he said, oh, three cards already, huh? He was like, okay, thanks, bye. And I thought, what on earth was that about? And I said, what, what are the three cards so far? What does that mean? And he said, well... I didn't tell you this, Jim, but today's my birthday, February 28th. I said, well, happy birthday. I wish we'd have known we would have thrown you a party. And he said, I, I don't have fond memories of, of birthday parties. And I said, well, why? Well, here's his story. Uh, when he was in sixth grade, let's see, Caroline, you're in uh, fifth grade, right? This is sixth grade. When Dieter was in sixth grade, he said he had a bad year. They had just moved. He was the new kid, and he was a weird kid, self-proclaimed. His parents were German, and he said, I always went to school with weird lunches. He said, everybody else had bologna sandwiches, and I had cow tongue sandwiches and that kind of thing. He said, so I wasn't accepted. But then one day, one of the kids said, hey, isn't your birthday coming pretty soon? And he said, yeah, it's on February 28th. And the kid said, oh, man, you just missed it. That would have been so cool if you had been born on February 29th. You'd only be three years old. It's, it would be so cool to be born on leap year. Well, immediately, Dieter, wanting acceptance, latched on to that. He said, oh, well, I was born on leap year. I just celebrated on the 28th. And they were like, oh, cool. We know a guy who's a leap year birthday. Let's have a big party. So they had a big party, had a cake with three candles on it. They celebrated. His family, fortunately, didn't find out about it. And this was great. I'm the only kid in the school who has a leap year birthday. And all of a sudden, he was somebody, and Dieter was so happy. 
Four years later, he had completely forgotten about this. He was in high school. But there was a guy who wrote for the high school newspaper who had been in elementary school with him, and he was looking for a story. He said, you know, we have a high schooler here who's turning four years old soon. Yeah, Dieter Zander, he was born on leap year. You know what? Let's do a story in the high school newspaper about it. And Dieter didn't know what better to do. So he's like, yeah, okay. So they interviewed him, and on the back of the high school newspaper, huge picture of him blowing out four candles. And, and the uh, title was High School Junior Turns Four. And he thought it was sort of fun. And then his mom got a hold of a high school newspaper. And she was Dieter's son. What does this mean? He said, oh, oh Mom, we were just having some fun. It, it's, it's nothing really. Well, the lie got deeper. He's trying to keep it from crashing in on him. Four years later, Dieter is 20 years old, or about to be. He's on staff at a church as an intern, and some of the people from his high school go to his church. They go to the pastor in mid-February and say, hey, you know, Dieter was born on leap year, and this, this year, February 29th, is on Sunday. Let's throw him a surprise party. Great idea. So at the end of worship on that Sunday, February 29th, pastor calls him up. Dieter, please come on up. Dieter doesn't know what it's about. He gets up in front of the church and everybody stands and sings, Happy birthday to you. And he realized why. They said, yeah, we understand. You're just, you're just five, year old, five years old now. That's so neat. And he finally decided it's time to come clean. And he stood in front of the church and said, for the last eight years, I've been living a lie for the sake of acceptance. And and I think that's so great that he confessed it and got through with it. But the ironic thing, when his wife called him and we were sitting there having dinner, he said, I said, so what did the three cards already mean? He said, I am 42 years old and I still get leap year birthday cards from people who have never found out about my lie." that it keeps coming back lying as you might have realized in your own life complicates things sin complicates things abraham paid such a price for lying and yes for being disobedient to god what was supposed to be a simple solution really got abraham entangled as you know and all sin complicates things last week we talked about the story of abraham And the fact that his story is really more the story about a God who is faithful even when we are less than faithful. And Dieter practiced deception in order to be accepted. Really, Abraham practiced deception to save his own hide, to protect himself because he was scared. He was scared of the Egyptians because he sensed that they might take Sarah in to be one of Pharaoh's wives. And he told her, lie. (laughs) Tell them you are my sister cooperate with them and in the process he actually compromises his wife now the deception on one level might have seemed to have worked well at first he was given a lot of gifts he was given a dowry in a way and abraham becomes a rather important cog in the machinery of egypt but he had to have been in mental anguish and he had to have carried that around have you ever carried around a sin a failure to where it just really becomes a weight, a burden. And you realize this ripple effect about how it can impact people around you, even those dearest to you. He had to feel 
guilty here. He was accepting gifts under false pretenses, let alone compromising his wife. He worried about Sarah, no doubt. Now, it's important to keep in mind there was a period of waiting before a Pharaoh would take a wife. That's made clear in the book of Esther, actually. So Pharaoh had yet to officially take her to be his wife. So God was protecting her, taking care of her, but she was still captive to the Pharaoh because of Abraham's deception. The bottom line, Abraham failed Sarah. She paid a price for it. Others paid a price for it. Obviously, he paid a price for it. Even worse off, he failed his God. It's a serious lapse in faith. Here, the brave pioneer of faith becomes this prototype of failure, really, in the faith. Now, what got him to this point? You've got to back up a little bit in the story. It was an uncertain circumstance that left him vulnerable. There was a famine. It says there was a famine in the land. As you know, the life of faith doesn't guarantee that we will avoid difficult circumstances. We're not immune to that at all. As Jesus said, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. But we are still called to be faithful if we are believers. And God did not instruct Abraham to go to Egypt. Clearly, the expectation was he was to stay there close to the promised land. He was disobeying God, first off, by going to Egypt. But he thought, in practical terms, that's what I need to do. The Nile River is there. The water is there. Egypt is becoming known as the breadbasket of the world. Food is there. I need to go there. And he went, and in doing so, he disobeyed God even at that point. And it reminds us that uncertain circumstances can make you vulnerable to sin and to failure. We, we want to take matters into our own hands. We want to be in control. And that results quite often in our being disobedient. And often in our vulnerability, we give in to temptation and to sin, which begs the question this morning, am I in Egypt this morning in some way? Are you in Egypt in some way, shape, or form this morning? You have already disobeyed God, and so you're finding yourself in this heap of sin, this place where you know you are doing wrong, you have done wrong, you have failed, you have failed God, you have failed yourself, you have failed others. And it's just a difficult, difficult place to be, and that's where Abraham finds himself at this point. People talk about how vulnerable we are when we are tempted to sin but it's important to keep in mind even after we have committed some serious sin we are still vulnerable to the evil one i think this is so important for us to get this into our minds the evil one is still trying to get at us even after he has succeeded in making us fail miserably in some way abraham had already failed in giving into temptation and sin but he was still vulnerable how can you and i be vulnerable even after we have sinned miserably. I think in two ways. I think evil tries to get the best of us even after we have fallen seriously in at least two ways. One, evil wants you to take failure lightly. We sin in some way, and in some way we try to rationalize it away, compartmentalize it, just not deal with it, think that it really wasn't all that bad. Now let me say this. Am I going to get to a point here somewhere in the sermon where I'm going to talk about grace? Well, yes. Because God is a God of grace and God is unconditional in his love. But I do not want you leaving here thinking that because I'm going to talk about grace that you should not be concerned about sin and failure, particularly your own. You remember the story when the woman was caught in adultery and Jesus told the accusers, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. They drop their stones, they walk away. And he goes up to the woman and says, does anyone here condemn you? No, sir. Then neither do I. 
Is that where the story ends? He makes one more declarative statement, really an imperative statement. What does it go? And what does it And sin no more. Tragic when you and I take sin lightly. Yes, there is grace that God offers us endlessly and boundlessly if only we accept it. But there is also cheap grace that you and I can commit when we embrace it, but embrace it and carry it lightly and don't take it seriously. God can smell cheap grace a long ways away when we are taking it so lightly. And there's another reason we should never take our sins so lightly Because it's how the world perceives us in our sin and our hypocrisy. One of the great tragedies in this story, and I don't think we always catch it the first time we read it, is Pharaoh has taken in this woman, and in his culture that was perfectly justifiable. He takes this woman into his household. She hasn't officially become his wife, but here she is, you know, staying at this strange place. And then a disease comes upon him. And somehow he perceives that this is God who has brought this disease on him. And he goes to Abraham, or probably calls Abraham to himself and says, Why did you do this to me? Why did you let this happen? Do you catch that? Because really, Pharaoh becomes an unwitting prophet. And I want you to think about this. You know the story of Nathan when he becomes a prophet to David and confronts him. Well, Nathan was a faithful God follower. And in a roundabout way, he confronts David and says, you are the man who is sinning. But here it is an unwitting pagan who has to become a prophet to one who is supposed to be the prime example of faithfulness to Yahweh God. As I heard one preacher say, this Pharaoh was a cat-worshipping, dog-worshipping, water-worshipping, sun-worshipping, beetle-worshipping pagan. And that's true. And it was this pagan who has to come and confront abraham and say why did you do this isn't it tragic even in our day when we engage in some kind of sin that is so serious and the world looks at us and says why did you do this i thought you were different i thought you really believed what you claimed to believe i thought you promised to live by that I thought you were a covenant people who took this kind of thing seriously. Why did you do this? It is tragic when the church gets confronted by the world saying, you're better than that, aren't you? Why did you do that? That's really one of the great tragedies in this story. Abraham, supposedly the great faithful, the great called one, the great father of a nation, being confronted by a pagan, unbelieving Pharaoh. The church still runs into tragedy when we show our hypocrisy and our sin to the world in ways that causes them to question us and doubt us. So I'm not here today to tell you to take your sin lightly just because grace from God is available because we are so guilty of cheapening it. When the world becomes our prophets, something's wrong. We don't want to be judged by the world as phony, as artificial. And so let me just say, it's better not to fall at all. I know that sounds trite and superficial, but it's better not to. Abraham sinned, but you go to the beginning of chapter 13 there, verse 1. He gets out of Egypt. That's a good thing. 
really, he begins that journey homeward, just like the prodigal son, he begins a homeward journey. But there is something better than getting out of Egypt. There's something better than the prodigal son returning home. There's a better option. You know what it is? Not leaving home at all. Staying home spiritually in the first place and keeping your eyes set in a righteous relationship with the righteous, holy God. And you can do that. You can't blame God. You can't blame anybody else. You have the capacity not to fall. Verse 24 of Jude says what? Unto him who is able to keep you from what? Anybody know? From falling. I have a friend named Whit uh, Criswell who lives in uh, uh, Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, he was a church-going man and yet, make a long story short, fell into this uh, addictive pattern of gambling and lied about it to his wife, lied about it to his friends, lied about it to his pastor, eventually began to, to embezzle money in order to pay off his bills, his debts. He winds up having all his plans crumble. He thinks about suicide. The IRS and other authorities begin to investigate him, and he finally comes clean. And he said, the greatest day of my life was when I told the truth and the authorities and the feds, I'm not going to lie anymore. And he didn't. Now, he still had to go to prison for four years, LaGrange Reformatory in LaGrange, Kentucky. He began teaching Sunday school classes in the reformatory. Once he got out, a church was gracious enough to have a pastor serve as his mentor for a few years. Eventually, he became a Sunday school teacher. Later on, I think it's wonderful, uh, more recently, he was ordained as a minister after a whole lot of mentoring and accountability, this kind of thing. He was ordained to be on a staff in, in his specific role, he's not a senior pastor, but he ministers to other people who are dealing with addictive personality issues. But I remember hearing a talk that he gave to a bunch of men when he said this, Fellas, please know that it's much, much better never to gain a testimony like mine, but much better to have a Savior who not only rescues you, but also has the power to keep you from falling. And he's right. The evil one wants you to take your sin lightly, but don't do so. You know, put your faith in the Heavenly Father. It's better not to fall, to fail at all. But there's one other way, because we all do that at some point. Again, I'm not excusing it. Hear me on that. We all can get to that point where we commit the sin and we're in a serious heap of sin. And that's one temptation we have is just to let it kind of rest easy in our minds to take it lightly but there's one other thing that evil does to us when we are vulnerable after we have failed god in some way evil wants you to give up you know, satan would have you believe that after you fall in some really bad way after you have failed in some miserable way after you have really let god down and yourself down and others down and there's been a little bit of a ripple effect that your life is over I think about Abraham. Some people might have written Abraham off. I mean, this was early on in the experiment, so to say, uh, of this whole thing of giving birth to a whole nation. And people might have written Abraham off, but the great thing is that God never did. And it's ultimately about God's story. And this is God's sovereign story. And you know what? Even when it comes to you, he's not going to let your sin get in the way of his story. And he wants to use you in a glorious way. He truly does. Not necessarily because you deserve it, because it's his story and he wants you, out of his love, to be a part of it and turn your difficult tragedy, your difficult sin into some form of triumph 
You're a part of his story. And he wants you to get back up. And well, you know, I remember when my children were around 10 months old and they start trying to learn to walk. Well, inevitably, they're walking around. Or, well, they're, not, they're sort of walking around. But they get to a point of what? They're always going to stumble and fall along the way. Well, if you have a 10-month-old there and they fall one time, do you say, oh, well, doggone it, you're broken. We're going to have to take you back and get another kid. No, you never do that. You say, well, come on, you can do it. Get back up. Here, I'll even help you up. You can do it. Truly, that's how our loving Father is with us. You have fallen, but if you confess, you can recover and move again toward him and walk. A wonderful African-American preacher said, always help somebody who has stumbled and fallen because they had to be walking. He's right. Maybe you're in Egypt today. You have experienced a lapse of faith whether it be a broken relationship or some private sin or a deception you've been involved in or some kind of act you regret, some, something you said that you regret, some pattern of behavior that you regret, whatever it might be. What did Abraham himself do to recover? Well, he got up and left Egypt. He got out of Egypt. He got out of that place that he went to where he was disobedient in the first place. He got up and got out of there. And where did he go? This is what's great. What did he do in an act of repentance? It says he went back to Bethel. What do we know about Bethel from chapter 12? That is the first place he built an altar and worshipped God. I want you to think about that. That's what he did as as his act of repentance. He went back, built an altar, went and worshipped God where it all began. In a sense, he went back to church. He went back to that place where he first experienced the love of God. What did it say to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 where Jesus takes Ephesus to task saying you know you're doing all these things effectively you're an effective church but the problem is you have lost your first anybody know love you've lost your first love and that's where you need to get back to that's exactly what Abraham does he goes back to where he first glorified God expressed his gratitude his love for God he went back earlier in his own story and his own faith narrative said i've got to get back as a prodigal to that homeward place spiritually where i know that he is there waiting and i can start over and you can when we fail he is so incredibly faithful he watches over us even when we don't deserve it i want to close with this and i could read the whole thing but i'd encourage you sometime this afternoon to pull out hebrews chapter 11 where you go through this roll call of the heroes of faith, right? The hall of the faithful, so to speak. And Abraham gets probably more airtime in that chapter than anybody else. But this is the thing I, I want you to note. None of Abraham's failures are recorded there. It talks about where he was faithful and how he did follow God in faith away from his home of earth, looking for a kingdom that was more than material, it was spiritual. And by faith, He was faithful throughout. There's no record of his relapses in the faith. There's no record of his failures. And that's really the right perspective that you and I need to remember. Because if we turn and confess, just as we read at the outset in Psalm 51, we will be washed white as snow because of his grace, because of his his love towards you and me. I talked about uh, what Chris will just a moment ago who had gone to prison 
And some years later, he was taking a trip from uh, Lexington to Louisville, and they passed through LaGrange, Kentucky, and his 14-year-old son, Scott, was with him. And, and when they drove by the prison, he said, Scott, do you know what that is? And Scott said, yeah, it's a prison, Dad. He said, do you remember that I was in that prison? He said, yeah, Dad, remember I was a kid, and I remember coming there to visit you when I was real young. And uh, Witt said to him, son, I'm, I'm so sorry about that. I've wondered at times, you know, how you have felt about that. And his son Scott said, Dad, think about where you are now. He said, it's almost like I, I think, you know, maybe you just had to get to that point where you could finally turn around and start moving ahead. And look where God has brought you. You've been ministering to people. Now you're about to be ordained as a minister and reaching out to other people who struggle with the things you struggle with. Dad, think about how good it is now because of how you turned and you were man enough to do that. And Witt said he just had to pull off the side of the road and they just embraced. He said sometime later, he took his daughter Whitney by that prison. Now, Whitney was a lot younger. Whitney was five or six. I can't remember. I think she was five years old. And so he brought Whitney along. He, said, he drove by the reformatory. He said, Whitney, do you know what that is? And she said, Daddy, is it a hospital? He said, no, that's called a reformatory. It's a prison. It's where people who have done bad things go. And she said, oh, it's a prison. He said, yeah. And he said, Whitney, you know what? I spent some time there. In there, Dad? Yes, in there. Dad, no, not you. Yes, Whitney, this is before you were born, but, but I spent some time in there because I did some bad things. He said it was so cute. The first thing she said was, don't worry, Daddy, I won't tell anybody. Well, But he intentionally said this. He said, Whitney, I was in there, and I brought Scott by recently, and he helped me because he reminded me, you know, how far I've come. But you know what? He said, that's why you and I need a perfect heavenly father because earthly fathers are not perfect. We need a perfect heavenly father. So my question for you and I this morning is, have you put your faith in that perfect heavenly father as of late? even as you perhaps have struggled yourself with some sense of woundedness or some sense of sin or some sense of failure, whatever that might be. Let's bow our heads for prayer. And again, as we enter into this discipline of meditation, I want to give you a moment just to have a silent moment between yourself and God to confess whatever it is, it is that you need to confess to him. What is your Egypt this morning? What is that place inside your soul that is a place of disobedience, of waywardness, of rebellion, of grief, of guilt, of hurt, of regret? Lift that up to him now in silent confession and let him love you. I guess that's why they call it faith, O oh God, at least part of why they call it faith, that we need to have faith in the fact that if we confess our sins to you, you are faithful, and you will forgive us and cleanse us. We give you thanks for that, that you pick us up, dust us off, wash us clean, help us to walk in newness of life. And some of us here, some of us here really need to hear that this morning. Thank you for your grace.
Thank you for your love. May we never take them lightly. May we be challenged all the more to follow you, our Heavenly Father, that we might not have to be so prodigal in the future, but walk with you in righteousness. It's not easy. It's never easy. And yet humbly we come before you and confess to you our need for you. We bring ourselves, warts and all, as we sing in just a moment, we bring ourselves just as we are, just as I am. Again, we can only give you thanks, humble thanks for your grace, for forgiving us when we have failed, for redeeming us when we have sinned. We thank you ultimately for your son Jesus, who paid the ultimate price of redemption, that we might have newness of life and be with you forever. For that, more than anything, we give you thanks. In your name we pray. Amen.